This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Today's show is sponsored by Score Big. Next time you go see any game or show, go to Score Big first and see how much you can save. Download the new Score Big app for your iPhone or head over to scorebig.com and enter promo code BADCHRISTIAN to save $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com, promo code BADCHRISTIAN. Today's show is also sponsored by Tracker. Make losing things a thing of the past. Pair Tracker with your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. Go to thetracker.com right now and enter promo code BADCHRISTIAN to get 30% off your entire order. You are now entering the Bad Christian Podcast. Joey, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. We got Peter Inns on the Skype, so drop some knowledge on him. That's right, baby. When I was in school, everybody needed P.E. It's the Big Christian Pooking. All right. All right. Well, welcome to the show. Pete, thank you for joining us today. Sure, man. Great to be here. Where are you in town? You where, well, I'm not sure where you are. I'm here. Where are you? Oh, good. Okay, we're, we're all, all in the here. same place then. We're all we're in different we're... years. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got your number, Matt. He's Toby, how was your flight back yesterday? I, we, Toby podcasted in my garage yesterday, and yeah. uh, I took him straight to the airport. We got done doing a podcast. I took him straight to the airport. He flew overnight, then had a staff meeting, and then came straight here to podcast right so have you literally not been to bed since we podcasted in seattle yesterday well i did i was able to sleep on the plane but it's really funny so uh here's the thing about me and when i'm at home i really do go to bed early like i used to make fun of my wife for going to bed early but she i think just because she is so consistent with, with when she goes to bed i go to bed early now too so I'm talking like a lot of times we're in bed by like 8 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> I so, cannot even imagine. I know. Nobody in the I, – I don't know if other people are like that. I don't know. But like we might watch TV till 10, but we'll lay in bed and relax or whatever. So what's really funny is even in Seattle, the three – so I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. So if I go to the West Coast, there's a three-hour difference. And it was really funny. Basically, I, three nights, I think, uh, people told me it was like 8 p.m., there and people were like hey are you okay you look really tired like the, the last night we were there we went to see some friends play it that their bands play and a girl who i'd never met before we were talking she was like hey you look really tired <laughs> <laughs> and, and i'm so thrown off by the the time zone changes like time zones are the worst enemy of my entire life because you i get extremely jet lagged right simply uh in the continental no, that, united and states and that's frustrating that's frustrating to me because matt always maintains no matter what wherever he is in the world that is the time right. so he's just going to roll with it if, if even if at his home it's 3 a.m but it's you know noon wherever he's at that's what he's going with i cannot do that I just can't like my body will not. So this whole week. So anyway, to make a long story short uh, or even longer, I guess um, <laughs> I, I flew home. So last night, Matt and I worked all day doing bad Christian stuff. And then uh, he dropped me off about nine o'clock and I had my flight at 1120. And I felt like a weird zombie because I was so tired. I was so tired and I'd had a couple beers and I was just like walking around the airport. And I was wondering, like, do people think like something's wrong with that guy? Probably so. It was really like there's something wrong. So I so I didn't know what to do. I was feeling a little uncomfortable. Like I was like, man, I bet I look just super tired or weird or whatever. So I went to Wendy's and bought a frosty and just tried to look normal <laughs> eating an ice cream. Because <laughs> well, I was so out of it. Toby's sleep 
uh, deprivation, Matt may explain the the following commitment that I got from Toby uh, earlier today. He told me that he really wants to cuss less. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, here's the thing I noticed. What would prompt such a proclamation as that? All right. So I do use profanity, and I don't feel convicted by it, but I do think that for me, I say it too regularly. Like I'd use, I'll use a, a, a cuss word, I guess is what we'll call them, uh, just too easily. Like that, and, and what I'm saying is I think that makes me a little less, it's, it's a little low bar just to go to that word, just to go to, you know, shit or damn or whatever it is. Like that's a little low bar. Couldn't I think of a cooler word to use sometimes? Yeah. So I want, I want to be smarter <laughs> in my profanity use. Very good. Does that make sense? Peter, just, I don't know if you cuss, but up, do, do, does that make sense, what I'm saying? It makes sense. I mean, you could just buy a thesaurus or something, you know, to, <laughs> uh, you know, mix it up a little bit. But I hear you. I hear yeah. you. Well, that, I always heard that Peter's with comedians. Comedians said that when you're, when you're a clean comedian, it is harder. Because the easy joke is to say the, the cuss word, you know what I mean? Or, or just to throw in a cuss word or a tough word. That gets an easier laugh. But if you don't use profanity then it actually means you're you're thinking it through and using way more vocabulary. Yeah. So I think that's kind of cool. I, I think that's kind of neat. I, I'm fine with yeah. cussing or whatever, but I think that is kind of neat for sure. So, hey, so yeah. this is this is my first week back from a month sabbatical, and I'm talking to Toby on the phone, and Toby's in. I'm leading the church mode, and he says, hey, just letting you know, staff meetings at 10 o'clock. said at 10.30, but you guys go ahead and start without me. I said, hey, Toby, I'm the campus pastor here. We can start when I want to. And Toby said, ah. We got to be in the same room and officially pass the baton. It's not passed yet, so Toby tried to tell me what to do. <laughs> totally. Peter, uh, Joey's been on a – so our church uh, gives pastors, after a certain amount of time, a sabbatical. And so I am, I'm normally the worship leader at our church, and Joey's the campus pastor, but he's been gone for, what, uh, half a year? About a month. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like half a year. So I've been acting campus pastor, acting worship director acting small group leader all that stuff so so let me let me ask you all a question because we uh, i just had a conversation with someone after our staff meeting i'm curious what y'all think because i'm still thinking through this he points out a passage in genesis it's not even really important what it is but basically in his mind he's just like wait a second this just doesn't line up here this doesn't make sense and he he said as of recent I have been running into different things in the Bible that doesn't make sense. I'm like, dude, you're you're preaching to the choir. This has been the story of my life for the last 15 years. And I, I just, I wanted to share with him, look, you are a Christian. You believe in God, um, but you're starting to come into contact with some things that you're just like, wait a second, if I don't believe this, I, I'm, I, I can't be a Christian. Right. So anyway, I, I don't want to go into all, all the details here. But I came out of this conversation thinking to myself, you know what? There are a lot of things that I don't believe anymore. And I'm reading the Bible differently. I'm looking at church differently and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But to get very specific, I don't think this, this is really going to probably piss Toby off. I don't think infallibility of God's word or inerrancy, and I know those are two different things, they should not be an essential in the church. So in other words, most of what people would call evangelical churches, when you sit through their new member class, that's one of the things that they say, hey, this is a close-handed yeah. issue. God's Word is inspired. It is inerrant. The, the original texts are infallible. That's pretty much what they say. 
And so when you start having questions of, wait a second, this doesn't make sense, you start to think, okay, well, if I don't keep going in line with infallibility and inerrancy, I can't be a Christian anymore. And I think the door needs to be open for that not to be an essential. Pete, is that your experience? Do you do you get a lot of people that come to you in like an early stage of uh, cognitive dissonance with what they believe and what they feel like, what line they need to toe? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because the church culture, what, what you guys are describing is, uh, you know, it's it's a matter of what, what church expectations are. And, um, yeah, that that's sort of a part of the evangelical subculture. But, you know, there are other iterations of the Christian faith that don't have that sort of, um, you know, uh, necessity for being an active member of the church and being somebody who's mature and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so this is sort of like a Jewish thing, too. I, I, I tell my students a lot, and anybody who listen, that part of the Jewish culture—well, there is no Jewish culture, but part of the Jewish tradition, at least, is um, the, the willingness and the, the importance and the necessity of debating and not being sure and going back and forth as part of what it means to be a faithful person. And that's something that's not always as common in the Christian faith. And uh, it's, it's sort of a shame because people—some people are just wired that way. Right. They just want to ask questions. They just have to. And to be told, you know, stay on the beach blanket, you can't do that kind of stuff, it's not going to be helpful to these people. Is it mainly evangelical that that, that is shunned or frowned upon? I mean, it can't be just that, but that's where it seems to be the most— uh, well, it seems to me, because again, that's a cultural thing, because, you know, however old you want to say evangelicalism is, evangelicals today are still sort of uh, dealing with um, sort of attacks on the evangelical fundamentalist thing, which really began in earnest in the 19th century. You know, and that's mm-hmm. there's still fallout from that where there's a protectionist stance. You know, you want to protect your tribe, you want to protect your way of your narrative, your way of looking at things. We all want to do that. I mean, that's that's not like a, a particular thing with evangelicals. We we all have that. We all have narratives we want to protect, and social constructs and social cohesions that we want to adhere to. But um, you know, with with evangelicals, part of that is the Bible, and and the Bible looked on in a particular way. Whether we use words like inherent and infallible, you know, you're right. They don't mean the same thing. But functionally, they do. I mean, when yeah, you get down right. to it, you have a low ceiling, and and it doesn't matter what word you use, you just don't mess with certain things. And that, but that's maybe just like more. Uh, it, it just has got cemented in some kind of tradition. Like people don't even really take the time to know what that means. They just mean you do not say anything bad about the Bible. You do not question. You know, like that's right. the that, yeah. and, and that's not what people are really saying. But that's the tone they feel to the tune where they don't even really. Uh, try to define what er- inerrancy means. They just, uh, you know, the culture says, don't even ask. Well, here, yeah, here's go the, with it. Yeah. yeah, here's the tough thing for me when I started to have doubts in this area, and Peter, I'm curious what you have to say about this, is who who told us, hey, what you're reading right now, it's perfect. So you need to see it all as absolute truth. Who told us to read it that way? Jesus. Okay. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> you don't get the whole East Coast, Northern, you know, rise no. sense of humor thing. <laughs> I, dude, I was on yeah, the you, you don't, my, Peter, you the don't make jokes about the name of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus, okay? <laughs> We're going to stop you right there, sir. Toby just cocked a shotgun. <laughs> no, I was on the edge of my seat. I wanted to hear your explanation. I was going yeah, yeah. to be shocked. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, you know, it, you, it, it, is, it is common enough to hear evangelicals, you know, when I say evangelical, I'm not 
picking on them. I'm just trying to describe, you know, that that's all. It's not it's nothing personal here. But, um, you know, when evangelicals talk about inerrancy or an infallibility, they'll go right to Jesus and they'll say, well, Jesus felt the same way. Right. And and I think the answer to that is, well, yes and no. Um respect and reverence for scripture as any Jew would have in that day. Yes, of course, obviously. And and that's why when I when people say things like inerrancy or infallibility, I say, well I don't I don't use those terms because I think they actually keep us from understanding things in the Bible. That's my opinion. But I'd rather say something like reverence and respect for this ancient text, which is God's word to us, and we don't make a move without it. Yeah. That doesn't mean we agree with all of it. That doesn't mean we can't debate with each other and with the text. You know, we can do all that sort of stuff. But um, again, that's that's a difficult thing to to teach, uh, you know, a, a um, let's call it a biblicistic tradition that that has the Bible in chapter and verse and pretty much that's the end of it. You know, Peter, why do you think it is so attractive just to say, well, the Bible is in there is the whole word of God and that's it. And that's what I stand on. Don't you better not mess with me, sir. What is that? Why is it so attractive to just stay within that zone? Well, I mean, who knows? In my opinion, I guess it's it's that we like we like our narratives clearly written and bound, mm-hmm. and oh, and yeah. where things make sense. And then you know you've got maybe you don't have yourself the answers to all life's mysteries, but you have access to someone who does, namely God, and everything's going to work out just right. And no matter what happens, it's all going to be okay. And that's an attractive thing for people. And and you have this ancient text which is revered and. You know, this is it. I mean, I I now have something to hold on to that is going to give me a sense of certainty, and it's going to give me a comfort. And I see, I get that. You know, that's that that's I understand that we all want something along those lines. The problem is, and this sounds really condescending. I don't mean it that way, but that's a great theory until you start reading the Bible semi carefully, and then you realize that it's a much more mm-hmm. complicated text than this. Yeah. And and even the more most conservative people know that because they have apologetics machinery in place to sort of address, you know, we've got a, a you know a book that's several hundred pages about Bible difficulties that tells you something, you know, that that tells you that the Bible is actually a that's book. interesting. You're saying the fact that apologetics exists at, to the degree where there's that many points and is systematized that well tells you that there must obviously be a lot of problems like that have right. to be addressed. You know, yeah, you I have to so. have that much I, to. Yeah. to to push back against, or, yeah. or you have to have everybody a supplied answer. So you have, on one hand, the people who have bought into something and are going to, no matter what, come up with every possible thing to defend it, to have certainty and be able to shut down anything. And then on the other hand, of you know these evangelicals of to which I must belong uh, <laughs> are are the very people that defend the Bible the most that probably actually have very little like understanding or care or even read. Like there's probably a lot of people that defend the Bible with a gun. You know, like right. like they would defend their guns that don't actually even really read it. Right, right, because right. of what it symbolizes. You know, it <laughs> yeah, symbolizes, it symbolizes something. It stands right. for something, and you know, true. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Why? Why is that? Why is it so attractive to evangelicals? It, it, I think I think Peter, you're onto something there. It's safe. Like if you can say there is the Bible is inerrant, or the Bible is really against clearly homosexuality, or the Bible is totally against sex before marriage, or what, whatever it might be then you stand on that as opposed to actually the Bible, like God inter- in- intervening in our lives or something like that, I guess. But it, it's, why, it's so, why is it so attractive? It, it does seem to me a little bit like a low bar faith. Like it's, it, if I can do this, this, and this, then I'm in. Uncertainty is very, very uncomfortable. 
Right. Like, seriously. So it, it, if you start messing with someone's perception of infallibility, then you're basically saying there's uh, there's less certainty than what right. you've been living on. And especially someone who's built three decades of their life on right. this thing being perfect. That's that's I mean, that right. messed me up when I started to when I was introduced to some very valid uh, arguments from fellow Christians that believe in the same Jesus I do saying, no, the Bible's not inerrant. That was right. hard. Man. Totally. And, and, well, you, and you bring hard. up a good point. And Peter, I, I wanted to ask you too, like, is that, is that just us when we're reading the Bible inerrantly? Uh, like what, what has been, I, I don't know if you can answer this question or if it's too big to answer, but like, are, are we reading the Bible differently now than people a uh, hundred years ago or 500 years ago or 700? Are we, are we really seeing it differently now because of culture or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I think every, you know, all cultural shifts, they might lead to different ways of looking at the Bible. And whether or not we're reading it differently or the same as, say, people during the Reformation period, whatever, right? That almost right. doesn't matter to me. The thing is that there are cultural factors at work that determine how we read the Bible today that were not at work in the days of Calvin or Luther or Augustine or Paul, right? So we right. do have issues to deal with today that, that others don't. And, you know, things like science and, and forgive me, the internet, you know, we have a different world that we live in and, and sort of a negotiating of faith is there are different issues involved in that. And the Bible comes up differently for people like this. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's easy to believe in a dome overhead where the stars and the moon are sort of hanging until you have telescopes and Galileo and Copernicus come along and they tell you, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. You know, the sky doesn't stop. <laughs> it keeps <laughs> going, right? I mean, that's, and, and that's, right. that's uh, you know, and so you, you're forced to look differently at the Bible. And, and, and what's interesting is in, then you come at the Bible from a position of faith in God. It's not like, okay, I got to get the Bible right, make sure I'm, make, you know, that I'm sure about all this stuff. And then I can have faith in God. You actually have to start from another direction, which is really scary. That's what you're saying, Joey, right? It's really scary to not have that kind of certainty, right? Yeah. Where, um, you know, you you used to have a certainty in a document. And what you're being called to have is trust in God who might be beyond our understanding. Uh And that is frightening i don't like that either but that's just yeah. i didn't fight the rules either so well let me let me not make you explain it to us that you have a book that's really about this thing it's called the sin of certainty so we're talking about certainty of course but you i mean you've spent a lot of time in doing this and what i really love about it is this the i really like the contrarian nature of the title because it's pretty clear that what you're saying is not only uh can we not be certain but it's actually can be wrong or bad to uh, or a sin to feel like you have everything on some factual basis versus versus what you just said there, right. trust or yeah. faith, which is what God's really calling us to. Yeah, and just you know, just to be clear, I'm not saying you know the sin of certainty. I mean, well, it's sinful to be certain, and it's, it's not sinful to have a sense of certainty because that comes and goes. The sinful part is when you will do anything to hold on to those old forms of certainty, no matter what's going on in your life, when in fact. The turmoil that we sometimes feel, that the sense of doubt or the sense of having to go on a spiritual journey, that is actually pushing us, I think, towards greater maturity where, you know, we don't download everything through our brain. And if there's one criticism mm-hmm. of evangelicalism, again, this is very blanket statements because there are evangelicals who would strongly agree with what I'm about to say. The problem is that with evangelicalism is that 
faith really is downloaded through your head. And even though you accept Jesus into your heart, it's after a series of arguments, uh-huh. and it's all filtered that way. And that's a very, very difficult way to live because there's always a better argument out there, right? And and I, I think there's a there, it, that comes to an end sooner or later. Do you identify as evangelical? Um, I'm a post-evangelical evangelical. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I'm interested. <laughs> You're a P P E E. I can explain it, but then I'd have to kill you. So, um, now what I mean by that is a post evangelical in that sense, think of evangelical with a capital E, the institution, the, the mainstream structures of evangelicalism. I'm a post evangelical, but still evangelical in the sense of, I respect the tradition that, um, has been largely responsible for the development for my development as a person and for my spiritual life uh-huh. and i'm I'm honoring and respecting the trajectory I guess that I'm on, which is born out of an evangelical context. Now I go to an episcopal church and I'm very 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 happy in that context now I'm not episcopalian actually, but I still think of myself as somebody who's within that broader growing expanding trajectory of what's called evangelicalism. So I'm, I'm in that sense, post-evangelical, post-institution, but the heart is still there moving outward and seeing where this is going. Yeah. How do we all define evangelical as opposed to anything else? I'm really lost on that too. I've been thinking about it lately. And I think I said yesterday, I was, maybe I was talking to you, Toby, but I, I'm, I'm saying words change their meaning and movements change over time. So, like, the Republican oh, yeah. Party is not what it was. It doesn't mean the same thing. It doesn't have the same beliefs it had. And so so it could theoretically go with evangelicals that there's a theoretical position where you could be evangelical in 1960, let's say, and then you never changed a view you ever had ever, yet evangelicalism itself may have changed its views right. until, where, until right. there could even be a point where you were no longer evangelical in that sense. That never had occurred to me till yesterday, but I'm teetering with the idea myself of, am I that anymore? Yeah. And is it because I've changed or because it's going off a cliff? Sometimes I ask myself, I don't right. know. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's like, you know, we haven't moved an inch, but all of a sudden we're outside. That's right. Right. But other cases, it's people like me and maybe you guys who have sort of journeyed out of that intentionally because it's no longer a pleasing paradigm. It's no longer a paradigm that helps you make sense of the reality around me. Yeah. It's more of a hindrance to that, right? So we moved out of that, but we still respect it, and we still are in that conversation. And the fact is that there are masses of people in that same situation, right? So sometimes movements change and morph, and, and you're a part of that morphing and changing. And that's another way. And, and that's why, you know, a criticism that I've gotten, you know, quite a bit is, well, you're not an evangelical anymore. And I say, okay, I understand if you define it a certain way, but maybe there has to be an internal dialogue within evangelicalism to say, listen, we used to think this, this, and this, but we have reasons now for maybe not thinking this way anymore. And in other words, can movements move? Right. Well, they, they definitely do, but there's a well, they do move, but there's a problem with movements moving, and they the problem is they kind of only move one direction, and they re- they rarely uh, reverse course or go backwards or admit they were wrong is the problem. So they do move, and I want to float a cynical uh, notion by you guys, and feel free to, to shut me down on All this right. one because, like I said, it's cynical, so I'd be glad to be wrong. Yeah. But I drove past a halal restaurant uh, that, that just opened in my – it said halal friendly or something. It's a kebab place where I was looking forward to going to. What is halal? It's, a, the, it's the uh, – the, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's, it's, it's like kosher 
for Muslims or something. This okay. prepared uh, way they prepare food. I think it's okay. I may I All may right. have said that wrong. Yeah, but. yeah. And I thought, oh, that's just like kosher is, or that's you know this these things. And I was thinking, well, that's cool. That's neat that they have that stuff. But clearly, it's just born out of tradition. And if you had long enough time, you know, things that are tied to your scriptures, your tradition, become legalism yeah. in in a sense. Right. So I was thinking. Same, same with with Jewish stuff or even Amish stuff, and it's like it's these part of these cultures that is left over that seem to not necessarily make a ton of sense, but it's kind of quaint. It's like, well, good for them; they have this thing. And then I thought, right. wait a second, is this is this like the power? At one time, they were the power structure, so it became laws and all this stuff. So I wonder if it's possible that evangelicalism or modern American Christianity or whatever we have now. Is the same thing. We've built on tradition. We've built on these rules. We've built on these rules and legalism so much so. And we happen to be in the power position, but once we're not in the power position anymore, like when that's not the dominant thing in our culture, eventually right. uh, all of our legalism will be relegated to uh, just these quaint little things like Amish people. Yeah. Because it's weird because you we fight evangelical now and say they're op- we're oppressive right. to people and we need to stop the way they think about this, but you don't really yeah. criticize uh, Amish people for their things. They go, well, they're right. a small sect where they kick people out if they do this or that, and they do these weird things. And oh, these people have their thing where they eat this way. And so, if evangelicalism really goes away, if our culture really goes non-Christian, if all that stuff happens, then I think all the energy around our legalism will go away, and we'll just be they'll just be left to this outdated group that has some of these weird laws about premarital sex and stuff. Like, right. and it won't even mean anything. It'll just be like that's cute. In some respects, that's where they're—that's where evangelicalism already is. I think, with respect to the broader culture, you know, it's it's whether it's whether there's going to be a critical mass within evangelical movement that says we need to change as a group. Mm-hmm. And what usually happens, you guys are right. It there's a splinter group that happens. You know, the whole movement doesn't move, right? There's there's too much social cohesion. There's there's too much structure to how you look at life. For people to leave those things, and whether it's eating kosher or having an inerrant Bible, or you know, in Paul's day, being circumcised, right, or you right. know, maintaining yeah. dietary laws, all that kind of stuff, that's that's a part of the um, uh, just the reality, I think, of any sort of socially constructed religious faith. And all religious faiths are socially constructed on some level, right? We, it's about a, it's not individuals, it's groups and identity, and those things are very, very important. That's why I, I don't want to. I don't want to dump on, you know, evangelicals or anybody that has quaint traditions. We all have our quaint traditions. But is that what it'll look like, though? It'll be like in, in a certain amount of years from now, somebody say, Daddy, what is that? It's like, oh, well, Jewish people, they don't <laughs> eat pork. And what are that people? Oh, that's those, there's, this, there's this really interesting subculture where these people, these evangelical people say, don't masturbate. It's crazy. It's just part of their <laughs> quaint. It's really a beautiful, rich tradition where they, right. they shun <laughs> gays until you don't masturbate. And, that, you know, it's, it's quaint. <laughs> Once it's not in a power position, if the decline is real, then I, you know. right? Well, I just think the decline's already here. You know, I don't. I don't think we have to wait for that decline. I think it's all around. Can us. you tell us any stats on that? I'm I'm not familiar with it. But is there? I mean, I'm not putting you on the spot too. But what what do you mean by it's the decline is here? Well, I just you know I I just intuitively and just from experiencing things, I don't. I don't think you know the world out there is looking to evangelicals and saying, "Wow, what a light on a hill." These guys really are different than we are. We should right. really pay attention to how they act and say. It's and the thing is, maybe they should, but the public face of evangelicalism tends to be 
somewhat negative and at times quite ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And um, because of, you know, these um, unreflective kinds of comments that are made either about the nature of God or the Bible or morality and things like that, it just looks like another cult to people. Right. You know, if it gets to, if the decline is enough and enough people go away, it just will be that. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Peter, I'm dying to ask you with this book that came out in uh, 2012, The Evolution of Adam, what the Bible does and doesn't say about human origins. Can you give me a cliff notes? What does the Bible say and not say about human origins? Like, do you believe in a literal Adam and Eve? Do you, you know, how do you read the Genesis story? Well, yeah. I mean, that book is, cliff notes are hard to do for this. Uh, <laughs> maybe try to tweet it, but the book is two halves. First half's about Genesis, second half's about Paul. And because uh, Paul talks about Adam and Eve, well, Adam at least, in a couple of places, like in Romans and Corinthians. So basically with Genesis, the, the you know, what the Bible does or doesn't say about human origins, Genesis doesn't explain human origins. It's about national, political, religious self-identity of the Israelites. This is yeah. their story. See, Adam, I, I think Adam is read most convincingly as a microcosm of Israel's whole story, right? You have um, somebody created out of dust, put into a lush land, told if you obey, you can stay in the land. If you disobey, you're, you, quote, die, which means he's exiled. That's what happens at the end of chapter three of Genesis. And that's exactly Israel's story. You know, they're, they're taken from, quote, the dust of slavery. They're put into a lush land given commands to follow. You obey, you stay. You disobey, you're right. exiled. Exile is a place of death. So the Adam story is, is sort of, it's almost like a table of contents for Israel's whole story. Because this is about them. They, they have no interest, I will say this, no interest, no scientific uh -huh. curiosity. I wonder where people came from. No, God put people here somehow. Let's talk about us. That's the real story. That's, that's, right. that's huh. And I think that story begins in Genesis chapter 2, not in Genesis chapter 12 with, uh, with Abraham. I think it begins before that. So, so Gen it's, it, the matter is, the issue is, what do we expect Genesis to do for us when we read it? And to give us scientific or historical information, I think, is really to, to miss the profound theological point that the book is making. But that's where it starts to fall apart for me, or I get really confused. So I'm looking to you for a good answer here. But I would maintain that it seems to me that Paul, when writing about Adam— and I believe Paul was writing inspired text in a plain way. So to understand him plainly to me is that he thought Adam was literal. And so now I'm confused if he could be wrong or was that inspired, et cetera. Because he seems to be, I, what the rule I always use when reading the Bible is I want to believe and take the writing as the author meant it. And so if I'm, how am I listening to Paul if he was wrong about, about, Genesis being literal, or, or am I even misinterpreting that? No, I think, I, well, some people would say yes. Some people would argue quite strongly, like James Dunn is one person, he's a New Testament scholar, who, who says that Paul is a sophisticated thinker. There's no way he thought that Adam was a real person. Uh huh. So he should, so maybe he didn't assume Adam was real, and I'm the dumb one still. Um, or we are the encultured ones in our particular yeah, yeah. moment where we're trying to protect our faith against the bad things of science or whatever. So, but you know, I, when I wrote the evolution of Adam, my opinion was, I think Paul thought that Adam was the first person or, or at least a primordial person back there someplace. But the thing is, okay, 
I understand why Paul would say that because he's a first century person. See, the thing is, you can say inspired, but inspired doesn't mean Paul would agree with us and how we see things, and we should adopt his worldview on every point. That's one of the messy things about the Christian faith. We've got this incarnating God who is messy, yeah. and that makes it messy, and that makes it ignoble, and it makes it um, touchy, and it makes it not something really to brag about often, right? It's just you've got this God who who manifests himself in the normalcy of, of humanity. And, and that, uh-huh. to me, that's one of the best apologetics for the Christian faith. No one would think this up. Yeah, it's just an odd kind of thing. So, so when Paul, see, when, that's my point is, though, when Paul is appealing to Adam, he's appealing to Adam in his setting the way he understands this is his story, and he's appealing to Adam the way he understands the Adam story. And I want to understand Paul's theology, what he's getting at by appealing to Adam the way that he does. And the thing is, you know, the other fact, there are a lot of factors, but one big one, I won't go on about this, but one big factor about Adam, uh, about Paul rather, is that Paul is notoriously highly creative and inventive in how he handles biblical texts. And you see that already in, 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 in um, well, actually throughout the book of Romans, the way he talks about Abraham. And Abraham is like pre-law, so it's about faith. It's not about law. Well, Jews would disagree. They, for for Jews, uh, Abraham is a lawkeeper, but for Abraham, uh-huh. for, for uh, Paul rather, he's he's a model of faith, even a precursor of Christ in that respect. And it's you know Paul's very Jewish way of handling his texts is marked by a theological creativity born out of a changing need of his moment where he's got to understand this biblical text differently because this Jesus rose from the dead. And and that's that's a difficult thing to tweet in a church. You know, I mean it's a hard thing to get across quickly. Yeah. But there right. are, there are the historical realities and moments in which Paul is living and writing and thinking. Um, you know, it's 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 just it's more more difficult than Paul says, well Adam, okay, I guess that's it. No, what is? Why does he say it? What's his point in the Book of Romans? What's his cultural background? What's his worldview? All that kind of stuff comes into play to understanding Paul. You just said something that kind of blew my mind a little bit, which is you can't tweet it. Verse. Additionally, you can't really get somebody there probably within the context of even one sermon, or you know what I mean. To get people to that place of understanding and mystery is not something that's consumable in any. It's a, a, a I mean, for lack of a better word, a journey. Yeah. to get there. So that has my brain spinning. We got to take a break real quick and I need to use the bathroom and then I'd like to talk about that <laughs> when we get back. So hang on. So everybody t- uh, take take a two minute break. Now I told y'all before I got to take Georgia and Bridget to a Mariners game opening week here in Seattle. It was amazing. Played the athletics and we got incredible seats. We got them from score big. So big thanks to them. This is a really, really, really good company. Uh, Joe, you said you told me you were going to get to go to a Yankees game with your family soon. Yeah, we're vacationing in New York next month. And uh, already through score big, we got just unbelievable deals on six tickets at Yankee Stadium. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. That's awesome. It's crazy because there's something about just, you know, it's it's the culture we're in where live events are a big deal. And like, even we, we could tell that with streaming and the Facebook stuff, but nothing replaces an event that cannot be on demand. And sports are that like right. sports or going to the ballet and all the, there's tons of stuff that score big does tickets for, uh, in addition to just sports, but it's something unbelievable about being in the moment, not watching it on DVR, not watching it later and doing stuff out in public with other people that is, 
irreplaceable. And so I, I think going to events is something that I think is a big deal and people need to do with their friends and family more. Score Big is a great, great place to do it. Yeah, it definitely kind of falls in line with the new way of doing things too, things that are just so successful. I mean, you can actually think about your favorite teams or your favorite artists that you like to go see, a favorite. I mean, just Score Big works directly with your preferences. And so they match you up with unsold seats at unpublished prices. So yeah. they're giving they're giving you access to stuff that you're not going to have access to anywhere else. Yeah, they say that 40% of all live event tickets go unsold. And that's cuz people assume they cost too much, I imagine. Oh, totally. So that's where Score Big comes in. It's really cool because we've all been paying too much for tickets and now Score Big gives us some of the lowest deals out there. It's pretty unbelievable. Only with Score Big can you name a ticket price and be guaranteed to pay below box office up to 60% off. So here's what yeah. you guys got to do. Uh, number one, go to scorebig.com or download the new Score Big app for your iPhone and find the event and seats that you want. Two, make an offer with Score Big's name a ticket price feature. And three, get an instant answer and save up to 60% on your tickets. There's never any fees and shipping is always free. You can count on unbeatable prices and great seats. And when you're in great seats, you actually enjoy the game and you show all, all the more. Yeah, so, uh, hey, at the very least, anytime you're planning on going to see a concert or a football game or something, check with Score Big first. I mean, that, that's a that's a no-brainer is just to go to Score Big first. So for the easiest way to save on tickets, we're instructing you to download the new Score Big app for your iPhone. And if you enter promo code BADCHRISTIAN at checkout, you'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. Joy, what if they don't have an iPhone, though? If they don't have an iPhone, no problem, Bubba. Get $20 off online, too, at scorebig.com. So scorebig.com. Promo code bad Christian. Hit them with it one more time. That's scorebig.com. Promo code bad Christian. Don't forget they have an app and bad Christian promo code works for that too. All right, guys. I mean, I've said this before. I love Tracker. It is so awesome. It is on our remote controls, and that is the number one thing that I lose all the time. It is hilarious. I mean, it is hilarious. <laughs> I have it on my keys too, but luckily I haven't lost my keys and, and needed to use Tracker, even though it's super easy. Uh, part of me wants to lose my keys so I can I can find them. <laughs> I'm looking forward to losing my stuff so I can use Tracker. That's what's kind of cool about Tracker. You actually look forward to losing it because you know exactly where it is. But we have them on our remote controls, and it always comes in handy. I love sitting down on the couch, and I go, oh, where's the remote? And I go, oh, and my phone's with me. I just uh, pull up the app, and ding, 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 there it comes. I love it so much. I was thinking what I would want to do is put one in my camera bag. I've got a bunch of new camera equipment, oh, stuff yeah, like that, and idea. I keep it all in the same place. So the idea would be in the event that it got stolen or in the event that I left it somewhere, right. I could find it immediately because I've, I've done stuff like that before. you know. All right, so for those of you that don't have Tracker, let me tell you just a little bit about it. Tracker is a coin-sized device that locates misplaced keys, wallets, bags, computers, anything in seconds. Just pair Tracker to your smartphone, attach it to anything, and find its precise location with the tap of a button. It's that easy. It's so cool. You lose your phone, press the button on Tracker, and your phone rings even when it's on silent. So, guys, listen up. With over 1.5 million devices, Tracker has the largest crowd GPS network in the whole world. So your lost items show up on a map, even if it's miles away. Never lose anything again with Tracker. Listeners to this show get a special discount of 30% off your entire order. Go to 
the tracker, T H E tracker.com and enter promo code bad Christian. The hardest thing you'll ever have to find is their website. So Matt, hit them with it one more time. All right. You go to the tracker.com T H E tracker.com and get 30% off your entire order. So Pete, yeah. Thank you for giving us your time today. What, what do you say? We're keeping you from great from doing uh, past professor work. Yeah, being professor professorial and grading, it's it's uh we're in the middle of finals here. I've got some grading to do. So So rate rate this on a scale of one to ten as far as fun is concerned. With ten, this is the best thing you've ever done. One, this has been a living nightmare. Or you don't even have to do that. <laughs> this is the yeah, best yeah. thing I've done today. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm talking well, about. Well, speaking of, of school and stuff like that, we we have definitely read about some controversy where you like uh, they asked you to leave. Was it Westminster Theological Seminary? Was that? Uh, I mean, what? Here, I guess this is the question I want to ask you. Why are you? Are you a glutton for punishment? Like, why do you do all this stuff? You're super <laughs> smart. You have great take on anything. Have you ever thought like I'll just write what they want and I'll just stay away from the? I, what, <laughs> I mean, you you kind of it, it's. I, I'll read it. I'll read a. Uh, a comment about your book in a minute. Cause I just thought it was so funny, but I mean, you really are, you get, you have to just get like terrible comments and people posting mean stuff to you. And yeah, even like uh, Westminster theological seminary uh, wanted to kick you out or whatever. I don't know. What, yeah, somebody what mentioned it? that to me. If you want to talk about it, what was the, how did that, what was that? And how did it go down? Yeah, that's, that's a complicated mess. Um, you know, I, uh, I talk about that in The Sin of Certainty um, in a couple of places, and I think fairly objectively. But, you know, it's, it's, it's what happens in a lot of schools. You know, it sort of starts off, you know, long time ago, sort of conservative, but then it sort of grows up into something bigger. And I became a part of the school when it was something bigger and trying to get bigger in terms of its outlook. Uh-huh. But then, you know, there was a shift in administration and some key faculty member shifts. And then all of a sudden, it's like we're trying to get back to the 1920s. Literally, that's we want to be back to what we were back then. Right. And uh, it wasn't just me, but it was a number of people that just wouldn't fit into that way of doing things. And uh, so, you know, I decided to leave when I saw the handwriting on the wall. This was, you know, back in 2008. But it's it's just it's not even worth talking about it. The, the more interesting thing is like what I had to process personally, emotionally and spiritually after leaving. But, you know, this is as old as the hills, basically fundamentalism and and you know, whatever the opposite of that is, uh, you know, progressivism, a journey model rather than a fortress model. All that. But see, that's the hard part is that I don't think there is a good opposite to fundamentalism. So with legalism, with fundamentalism, and then whatever the conservative thing is, uh, that always is very clear because it's always safe or it's always super unified or it's always yeah. super narrow. And the opposite of it, you can't just say progressive because the opposite of it also could be made out to be atheist or anti right whatever it is, or anarchist. And you're going to have fundamentalists all over. You're going to have fundamentalist atheists and fundamentalist liberals and all that kind of thing. It's, it's more of a mentality. Right. And I think the problem with saying fundamentalists versus progressives, at least for me, is that I think those, that, that, um, uh, that scale from fundamentalism to progressivism is still, it still functions on essentially an intellectual scale where mm-hmm. the, the, the real difference is how you look at ideas. And, and I think that's very important, and I think it's a valid kind of scale to make. 
But I think maybe the difference between uh, the opposite of fundamentalism might be something more like a contemplative model for Christianity, Yes, where, where the intellect isn't the center of the universe. It's a part of what makes us human, but it's not, it's not the primary or only way to know and experience God. And, you know, you don't limit things to how you think through them, but it, it is how you experience. It is intuition. It's just being, it's just living and experiencing as ways of communing with God. That you, you're, And you're perfectly happy not being able to wrap that up neatly. Yeah. Need to wrap things up. But how, how do you reconcile, like, I mean, you, I, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm trying to do better. You get a lot of shit. Like when I, when I've read comments about all your books and stuff like that, you just get it. Like, I mean, people just say the meanest things to you. Like, like you got any of them, Toby, to read? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let me, let me just read one. I mean, it's so funny. Okay, so this is from uh, Goodreads.com, and this is about your book. The Bible tells me so. That's some of my friends. Uh, lo- love that. I had two. I have two or three friends that just told me for uh, forever. We got to have you on the show, and they love. They love that book. Right. Exactly. That's why I looked up that book. Yeah. W- w- I, I mean, our our circle of friends are like, man, this book is life changing. It's really awesome. And, and I want to preface this with, I believe. Peter, that you are just trying to study the scripture, like like you're not doing something evil, like to try your goal. I believe, and you, I want you to speak to this in a minute. But I don't think your goal is to prove it wrong; it's to learn and whatever comes out of that. But anyway, so this guy writes, uh, "I bought this book so I could study what exactly is all caps wrong with liberal Christianity." <laughs> Most expensive book I've picked up in a while. I think I paid over thirty dollars but I knew it would be an adventure in chaos and stupidity. I was not, <laughs> I was not disappointed. <laughs> he said, my goal was to figure out what exactly does Peter Inns believe and how does he justify it? And the answer is he does it. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you must awesome. get that all the time. So what, I mean, what keeps you going? Like what's your drive to go? Okay. People are going to say some terrible stuff about me, but I'm just, I got to keep going. What is that? Um, yeah, I mean, anytime you talk about God or the Bible, you're going to get criticism. That's just the way it is. Right. You know, you can't let negative voice. I mean, the thing is that there are people who are critical, but they're not people of ill will. Like this person who wrote that comment has issues, right? And and that comment right. tells me much more about him than it tells me about me. Sure. And when somebody says, my goal is to find out exactly what Pete ends thinks, I'm like, you need to get a wife or something. Just get, <laughs> you need to just. Yeah. You know, get out of your parents' basement and go do something. Just this is not helpful, and I'm not going to sort of allow that to sort of come into my mind and my heart. I, I would argue that helps you illustrate your point by by somebody saying that first of all that it would be reasonable or possible for somebody else to know or care or it matter or for the person to even have exactly what they believe is a thing. Right, exactly. What right. exactly does it's not like you because honestly, it's not that you're saying, well, I do have all these beliefs worked out and I'm just being vague in my it vague right. in my book. You're, right. it's like what you're saying is there you don't even know yeah. exactly what you think about everything and have a position on this of certainty. I mean that and maybe these types of comments people inspired your newest book, but that that exposes more and almost lends credence to your point. Yeah. When you see a comment like that. Yeah, I agree. So what what do you think about people that say, hey, if we're willing to uh, neutralize, you know, the Bible being inerrant, then we're opening the door up. Because you said something that I agree with as far as the, our, I'm not quoting you, but as far as the faith being experiential 
and having to do with the Holy Spirit and all that stuff. What about someone who says, yeah, but we could all be swayed in air. And, you know, so we have to have something that is fixed. And that's the Bible. Like there's a lot of people, and Toby goes back to your original question. The reason why this is terrifying is because, well, then who's right? What if right. what if one person right. says God said so, and then another person says something completely opposite? We've got to have something that's a standard. How do you address that, Peter? Well, I don't think that you know we're going to solve all of the world's problems or all the faith's problems one way or the other. Because when people say, you know, well, if you say that, you know, where's that going to end? How, what's going to keep us from also saying X, Y, or Z? And I say nothing's going to keep you from saying X, Y, or Z. But yeah. that doesn't mean you go back to the way it was, which clearly doesn't work. Now, the question is, are you going to be brave enough to step out from the comfort zone and say, God, I don't know where this is going. Yeah. Help, help, me, help me to live in such a way that honors you, and even when I don't even understand who you are. Even when I don't understand anything of where everything of where I've been is a fog to me, but I even and even if I if I don't have faith, I want to have faith, and I'm going to yeah. sort of step out like that. I mean, that's that's a that's a a way to live that I think many people have found inevitable, right? So, the, the, in other words, the the um the the fact of theological ambiguity doesn't mean that the journey is wrong. Right. I mean, it, right. it's sort of like when people say to me, um, you know, OK, Pete, you don't believe that Adam's a historical person. Well, Pete, if you believe that, then we have to let go of this, this, this and this. Right. And I say, well, you might have to let go of some of those things. But the, the fact that that um, evolution causes you a theological problem doesn't mean evolution is therefore wrong. It means you have a theological problem right. and you have to learn to That's deal right. with it. Right. And it's the same All thing, right. with it, you know. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's like you're saying. Uh, you know, it's like people saying, "Well, that's a slippery slope." But yet, I hate that analogy. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, think about it this way: What if they said, and this is a stupid, it just popped in my head. But what if, you know, you were trying to explore the ocean for the first time, and you get to the where it's a, you know, the continental slope there. Where you, what are you going to do? Say, well, that's a slope down to the middle of the ocean. You better turn around and not explore the ocean. Right. Just because it's a slope, and just because it's slippery, doesn't mean that what. That it's something valid there right. to explore or know about anyway, kind of thing. I know that defeats the analogy or the premise a little bit, but it just doesn't make sense just because it might cause you a problem yeah. to to try to have it all buttoned up and wrapped up. Which is why I don't like apologetics myself. I never really don't like it. Right. Even just calling it a slope, though, even just calling it a slope, already biases the whole discussion about what you're even talking about. Right. Right. Maybe okay. Okay, you guys are on a slope too. We're all on a slope, and and that slope is called fundamentalism, right? Where you start going down that easy path of everything makes sense, and before you know it, you actually are deluding yourself into thinking that you're absolutely certain about all these things. See, that's a uh-huh. slope. That's that's not the normal state of the Christian faith. That's a problem. That's a slippery slope too. You just don't know it. You just think that you're on a sort of level plane high up, and we're sort of falling off going down the slippery slope. Maybe maybe the contemplative types are actually they've got it right, right? Or maybe they have something worth listening to. Maybe there are different ways of expressing the Christian faith. Yeah. Just one way. Maybe there are many different ways. Maybe that's why there are denominations like a bazillion of them. Uh huh. Maybe. So, May, I don't know. What do I know about stuff? How do you read the New Testament and how do you take Paul's teachings? I mean, you, you spoke a little bit on your perception of of 
of Paul and what he thought, but do you think Paul's teachings are authoritative? So obviously the low-hanging fruit is homosexuality. and How do you read the New Testament, and how do you take Paul? I love that non-loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) How do I read the Old New Testament from left to right? No, you see, the thing is, I I need to engage Paul intelligently, which means to me I have to use— it's 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 the Wesleyan quadrilateral, you know. It's it's re- oh the old Wesleyan quadrilateral, oh, man. <laughs> Gosh, so we got to stop talking about that. Yep, I have that laminated car, uh, card in my wallet. Uh, I don't need one. I got to memorize. <laughs> but I think there's something to that, you know. So when I engage Paul, I do want to look at, you know, as soon as you ask the question, what was Paul saying in his context? Then you've opened up a door to a different kind of reading, a different kind of exploration of Scripture. I'm a biblical scholar. That's what I'm trained to do. And I'm not this way because I was trained to do it. I got trained to do it because that's how I am. That's the kind of—that's how I read. That's how I think. And so, you know, the the question of how do you read Paul is, for me, an exceedingly complex question. How I read the Gospels is an exceedingly complex question. I, I wish it weren't that complicated, but it is. You know, so and and the way I would answer that question, frankly, would depend on whether that person is just trying to start an argument, right? Or whether they really want to know. If they're just trying to start an argument, I just say, "Have a nice day. I got things to do." Yeah, but I'm not here to answer your questions, so you can, like the re- reviewer, you know, that that Toby read. Sure. I'm not here to answer those kinds of questions to satisfy people's curiosities. You've got your own life to live. You have a short life. Make the best of it. Don't worry about me. When did you? Uh first realized that your, your thought patterns and the way you view the Bible and culture, I guess, and everything, even within evangelicalism, like what could be divisive, you know what I mean? Like, 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 or, or that, or that people could be upset with you and you, you pushed on. When did you start having these thoughts that were different maybe than the norm, I guess, maybe? Um, that's a good question. I think before, before I went to seminary, actually, you know, this is a long time ago, um, where I remember just getting into discussions with friends of mine, whether, you know, Christian college or afterwards, I was out of college about three years before I started seminary. And I think even back then, I've always sort of been an intellectual journeyer. That's just, that's just how I'm wired. And when you're wired that way, you're not comfortable sitting still. You always have to say, well, what's next? Well, what about this? How about this angle? How about that angle? And of course, when you're talking about God, I think you have infinite angles to come at it from. So, and, and, you know, some of my friends were sort of like that. Some of them weren't, but, you know, I could sort of tell that where other people would be, remain comfortable, I might not, and they might not understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. What would you explain as what you are doing, though? Like, if if you had your way, is it to expand people's minds, or is there a? I don't mean the word agenda here, but mission, or and mission and agenda are super loaded. But what it would be like? Do you hope to spread information to more people of a certain thing, or or what would you say is your goal with all your communications? I think I think they're different. I think. Probably more more recently, the last couple of books, it's more to model a way of looking at the Christian faith that I know people are looking for, right? And 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 they want it articulated by somebody. So I'm just sort of holding something out there. Listen, here's a way of looking at the Bible that's a little bit different, or here's a way of looking at faith that's a little bit different that I know resonates with you. You might just be looking for words to talk about it. 
Right. That's a good way to put it. So you're offering people a perspective that you've spent time on intellectually and academically and through other people. So you're offering a point of view that may be helpful to some right? versus you've got some agenda to change. Yeah. I was just curious, do you have something more specific in mind? Like we need to overthrow this or whatever, you know? Um, <laughs> I think a lot of things we have to overthrow, but you know, if you, I just don't want my life to be always negative. You see, when uh-huh, you're right. doing the kind of thing that I'm doing, there's always this deconstructive dimension to it. You have to actually tear something down and then replace it with something else. That That's, I think, inevitable. And that's part of, I think, religious discourse anyway. Um, so, But I don't want to be dominated by that. Let's overthrow this so that I can rule. You know, I, I don't, I don't, that's not how I think, but I do think in terms of offering a more functional model, a more compelling model than what some people are really, frankly, suffering under and don't know what to do next. Do you have some things specifically that you think are harmful that we need to stop doing or just, well, you believe this way, I'll believe this way. Like I said, I'm just offering to you these perspectives. Or are there things that you actively want to combat in some aspects of our Christian culture? Well, I mean, I think what I what I think is harmful is, uh, you know, what I the sort of quip I use it. I, I use this phrase and the Bible tells me so, which came out a couple of years ago, um, using the Bible as a rule book or like an owner's manual, like finding verses and saying, yeah. mm-hmm. you do not do. And you know, on one level, I don't care if people do that, but I know that yeah. that's used to harm people to shame them, and then to sort of just keep them within very narrow boundaries where I truly believe that God doesn't want us to do that. I don't know that for certain, but I truly believe that. That's a matter of my own personal conviction, where I think people need to have that freedom not to be that way. And so that's something that I'm, I guess, against. Um, any, Any use of the Bible and the Christian faith as power to hurt and undermine other people, whether emotionally or spiritually or in other sorts of ways. Um, you know, I see, I think having, see, this is my own little narrow part of the universe and how I think about this stuff. I, I'm, I don't see every angle, but for me, part of what has to happen is, is keeping people from using the Bible in certain ways that can actually harm other people. Yeah. And, and for Protestants, it does come down to, what do you think the Bible is doing? For example, if the Bible is an errant, okay, how, how do you think about violence? You know, how do you, how do you think about violence in our world? And how do you think about violence of Christians doing violence against others? I have heard people say, deeply committed to Scripture, that uh, literally take me back to the good old days where people would have been burned to the, at the stake for saying what you're saying right now. Right? <laughs> Yeah, because it's part of the biblical tradition that God's, you know, go-to manner of handling disagreement is through violence, right? Yeah. yeah. So what I want to do is I want to rethink the Bible the way many, many people have, frankly, since the beginning of the Christian of the Christian movement, have been rethinking these things to say, okay, how do these ancient texts comport with our experience and with what we see God doing in the gospel, right? And that's a different way of looking at it. Let me ask one more perspective question to try to get a grip, uh, to try to triangulate where people are on this. So I can imagine people uh, very easily, it's obvious to imagine people look at you and say, well, you're being too loose, you're being too liberal, 
Um, you're giving too much uh, this way. That's too slippery. You're uh, compromising this, this, and this. Now, that's, that's obvious, and I can understand what you would say to that person. My question is, could, can you, from your point of view, look farther to the liberal uh, or explorative or progressive points of view that you would say, no, you guys are being too compromising of the faith. You guys are being too liberal and too flippant and not taking this uh, for what it is supposed to be. Um, for, for me, those things can't be separated from the quality of the person that I'm talking to, because, mm-hmm. I mean, there are people who are genuinely um, exploring or rethinking out of some life experiential necessity, very fundamental things about the Christian faith, whether it's the existence of God or whether Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and they want to think through these things and talk about them. For me, I, I just look at them as individuals, and I don't, I don't look uh-huh. at them as a system. I look at them as right. individuals and say, okay, listen, we can talk about stuff. So there's no question and there's no place where they are that for me is out of bounds. And that's just the way I am. I'm not so you, you couldn't look at somebody and say, well, look, man, I mean, you're being so contemplative and out there that you're just a general spiritualist and not even, re- this isn't even really Christian anymore. You're just saying all things are, are pot, like somebody that goes farther than you into the territory. They're just saying, well, all things are positive and all things are a journey. And that's good for me to some degree as a Christian and a writer and somebody that studies the Bible and cares about it. You say, oh, well, that's so liberal that it's not even in my stream anymore. Right. And I guess it depends on how widely we imagine this stream to be, right? And yeah. now we're getting into a very interesting issue, what you know, some people call Christian universalism, or you know, C.S. Lewis was very much in that mode of thinking, as are others. And, and I, I look at that and I say, I, I have no idea. <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> I, I frankly have no idea what God is ultimately up to on this little ball of dust we're floating around on. All I know is how I've got to treat other people. All right. So is there such thing as too liberal and too progressive? Um, yes. But don't ask me to give like a list of 10 things. Yeah. Yeah. I won't ask you to say who or whatever, but I'm just saying you, you could see yeah. how, yeah, I mean, I'm just curious how to triangulate that. Cause on one hand it can't just be, cause I, I resonate with everything you're saying and I'm yeah. interested in going down that trail more. And then I'm saying at the same time, huh? Is there too far to go that way? Yeah. Or is it all good, baby? You know, I, I, I don't know. That's a question for me per- personally. I think it's hard to answer in the abstract, you know, um, other than in real life situations. But, uh, you know, I mean, there are things that I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of examples off the top of my head, things that I read or hear that I just sort of say to myself, that's not really a Christian anymore. Right, right. Oh, and, and I think part of it is like, I think a real fundamental issue is you, you got to talk about Jesus once in a while. I, I mean, I mean that, that, seems, that seems like silly, but I've been in churches yeah. where they don't want to talk about Jesus. Right. And yeah. I'm like, I'm not really sure if I'm being nurtured in the Christian faith at this point. You know, I mean, right. we might disagree on how to understand Jesus and the significance of this or that, whether there were miracles or whatever. We can talk about any of that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. But there is, there's a fundamental, and, and I guess this comes down to incarnation, right? There, there's a fundamental connection between the divine and human that Christians confess is in Jesus of Nazareth. Even though we don't understand that, we can't articulate it, that's an article of faith. Well, that's well put. I think all was real interesting. Pete, will you hang out with us? And we're going to do the news, which we do on our podcast. And we're going to invite you to uh, hang out with us and do it. Sure. Toby's going to read a couple of news stories, and we'll news see where that stories. goes. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. here we go. You can, you can chime in on, uh, it's basically, you know, just where, where we are as a culture and what we're at. So Matt, kick the music yeah, for Peter, me. Peter, uh, Toby thinks the damn news is definitely infallible. Right. 
Yeah, yep. that's yeah. true. <laughs> Matt. All right, music is rolling. Music is rolling. In a world where Peter ends studies and researches and spends hours upon hours and years upon years just perfecting his craft and really researching about the Bible, and at any second a redneck can just go, <laughs> Peter Eanes, dumbass. <laughs> this is Toby Morrell, and this is the damn news, and we're talking about truth. Peter, I think you're trying to give the truth, so I appreciate it. So that's what I'm about, and this is the news. So here we go. This is... I think infallible. I think this basically kind of colleague of yours, Peter. I think you're smarter than me, so I don't know if I can call you a colleague. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, but I don't think I'm as smart as Peter. Uh, okay, this this kind of goes in the vein of what we've been talking about. So my first news story here: um, teen flashes penis in yearbook photo and gets arrested. <laughs> it's basically the same thing as what we've been talking about. An Arizona. Yep. Yeah, an Arizona student who showed his penis in his football team's <laughs> photograph was arrested brief, briefly after his high school unwittingly sent the image to hundreds of his Phoenix area classmates as part of its yearbook officials. Uh, as part of its yearbook officials said on Monday, a spokeswoman for the Red Mountain High School said the photo was printed in all of the school's yearbooks, <laughs> destined for some 3,400 students, but only about 250 books had been given out so far. Luckily, most of the yearbooks were still in their boxes, said the spokeswoman, Helen Hollins. The school hopes to get back all of the 250 yearbooks, and all books in the possession will be edited to cover the inappropriate content. So... Basically, I brought this news story to you because I really do keep thinking about um, Jesus too. Yes, exactly. WWJD bracelets. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I guess what I think about is I guess going along with what we have been saying. Honestly, like this this guy is now maybe relegated to that's what he did and that's his identity. Like like uh, recently, you know, D'Angelo Russell from the Lakers, he posted a video of his friend talking about che- one of the other uh, Lakers cheating or whatever, and so. My question is, like, this guy just, he said he did it on a dare. Somebody dared him to do it, mm-hmm. and so he did it. Now, his identity is wrapped up in that as a yeah. cut-up, at, at the very least a cut-up, but maybe a, a criminal or maybe a terrible person or whatever. He showed his wiener, and that's all awful and all stuff. But part of the problem is the construct of you have, now we have this construct of that's really bad. Wait a minute. People could see his penis Oh my Lord, this is really terrible. This guy's awful. Why did he do that? Recall everything and all that stuff. I kind of think that's a parallel to Christianity of, hey, don't do anything yeah. crazy because you'll always be known as that and it's terrible and you are awful and it's right. silly, right? Mm-hmm. But that's scapegoat. Scapegoating is what that falls into, I think. Right. It's like we right. need to have something that is bad so we can say something is bad so that we can both feel better and show that there is a way to maintain order. But it's pretty archaic in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus saying it doesn't really matter. Right. But that doesn't help anybody be certain of anything. And also the guy doesn't get to be just kind of, I mean, isn't it okay to maybe when you're 18 or 17 years old, just to be a dumbass? Like you do something this silly. This is the worst time ever. Go, hey, I, I should have done that. And yeah. now the guy's obviously learned, but because of the internet, you, Peter, you've been talking about the internet and, and stuff. like, because of that, now everybody knows, not just your high school, but now the world knows, Hey, this guy showed his wiener. He's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah, but that sounds like everything anybody's ever done. I mean, adolescent boys are going to do the – it's crazy that stuff can be immortalized. Pete, can you think of 
five or six things you did between the ages of 15 and 23 that it, had they been captured on cell phone or into into a digital photography that was available at the time that you, that would probably be a bad for yeah, you your, said in high school uh, your, your nickname was academic Ke- career Ke- stan pete <laughs> right yeah. <laughs> no i hope some of my high school friends are listening because they'd be laughing at that because that was the opposite of that when I'm i was sure. in high school i was actually a good kid so I have nothing in my past that you can dig up. However, <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, kids are just kids and kids do absolutely stupid things. And um, sometimes kids who don't do anything bad are, are actually going to run into much bigger problems later on in life, you know, because they've been sort right. of restricted. Yeah. So, but unfortunately, you know, you know, now it's, it's, I've, I sort of said this on a, on a blog post a while back about how, there are like younger people like in seminary writing book reviews of like established scholars and sort of these scathing reviews. And I'm like, you know, it used to be before the internet, you would write something like that and only a few people would see it. But now for the rest of your life, your reputation is banked is, is sort of, right. it's unfortunate. You know, this, this kid's an idiot probably, you know, and you know, did it on a dare. Well, right. <laughs> you know, but um, I don't know. Well, do y'all do y'all think the same goes for the positive side too? Like, for example, uh, the guy from Duck Dynasty said Jesus is Lord, and now he's a hero for Christian. You know what I mean? Like the the opposite side is true too. Like some guy, well, yeah, some guy yeah. just says something this, and everybody goes, "Oh, that's the greatest thing in the world." It, but it's, it's also a, false. Right. It's like the opposite. Well, I don't know if the opposite of uh, scapegoat would be like cele- uh, hero. Yeah, or but there's whatever. so much pro him for what he said or the stance that he took that now like that's detrimental too, because he's not going to be able to live up to that or whoever, you know, right. you know what I mean? So it's the same thing. You show your wiener, but also you might just say, Oh, well, I believe in Jesus no matter what and, and screw the liberals or whatever. And so that, that reinforces your identity too. Yeah. Definitely. It's just it really interesting. people like it. Cause it's a famous person, you know? Right. So we- right. Totally. It's all vicarious stuff, though, both it ways. Is. It's he's the hero, he's the villain, and it just makes me feel better about being me yeah. or whatever. Either way, so let's do another one, Toby, and then we'll get we'll get out of here. Uh, th- this one is a little technology, and it's scary to me. This comes from Petapixel um, dot com, and it says Russian photographer's experiment destroys the illusion of privacy. Russian photographer and art student Igor. Shiseskov <laughs> used, his, Good job. used his own photos and a facial recognition app to destroy any illusion of privacy we might have uh, with his latest project, Your Face is Big Data. The aptly named project was simple. First, he took photos of about 100 strangers on the subway. He said the people did not react in any way, although I was quite obviously photographing them. Then came the main step. He put his photos into an app called Fine Face to see if it could identify the people he had taken pictures of on Russia's main social media site, uh, VK on, it's basically like Russia's Facebook, I guess. Uh, I'm not going to say it because I'm going to obliterate it. Long story short, the app did very well. He was easily able to identify 70% of people he photographed, even though many of them looked, looked, or at least their expressions looked, vastly different on the subway than in their social media profiles. The message Igor is trying to convey is simple. My project is a clear illustration of the future that awaits us if we continue to disclose as much about ourselves on the internet as we do now. And my question is, and and, and Peter, this is something we've been going back and forth in. As Christians, should we care about our privacy? Like the fact that people are going to see us or know us or have 
dirt on us or anything. Is that is that something still our right to privacy that we should hold on to? Well, I mean, Christian or not, I think, yeah, um, because people will use it for bad reasons, you know, whatever you divulge. And, you know, when I'm on Facebook, I have fun on Facebook and I've got, you know, my friends and we fool around and stuff. But, um, you know, I hope hope nothing there people can get a hold of. I don't think they can. But if, if you know, they don't have the right to sort of um, exploit, you know, the what I choose to make public can't be exploited by some people for whatever reason. It is public, but it can't be exploited. So, you know, I think we need to be careful about that. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, and I think this guy's right. You know, I, I really do. I mean, I know plenty of people who don't put pictures of themselves or their families on Facebook anymore. They do it on, you know, private channels to send pictures to relatives and things like that. And, and I understand that. The scary thing is the government part of it, really, though. I mean, I understand. I mean, first of all, there's hackers. Right. People can steal stuff, and maybe it's wrong. I mean, we don't really know the ethics of all this new technology, but yeah. the problem is the technology is going to expand farther and faster right. than our ability to make good ethical decisions. Right. Like, I don't know if, I'm, if it's okay to put my kid on Facebook or not. I don't know. Right. And it'll be too late by the time anybody understands exactly what right. the, the yeah. drawbacks are. Yeah. But the scary part is being the government. Like, for instance, somebody sent me a message the other day. It was our manager saying either he or somebody told him that they, it's like a conspiracy theory, but that like the government owns Snapchat. And so just to get everybody's faces, yeah. like they're trying to get just like, but, but really if the government could get into Facebook and I, I put my face into a recognition thing for that car app we were using yeah, Toby yesterday. Right. And it wanted face. It wanted my face where I had to line up my eyes and the mouth. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if the government can hack all all, all these things sure. anyway, then they're going to have facial recognition. Like yeah. they probably could do that, just like they do on you know the show 24 and stuff. So it's probably even if you try to keep your stuff off of somewhere, you're going to have to assume. Yeah, I mean, you probably could right. get face recognized. And right. Right. No matter what, it's probably a foregone conclusion in a way. So I personally, I don't ever feel like fighting for privacy because I feel like well. But I think it's worth it. I mean, I hope somebody's fighting for it. Well, there may come a time when everyone's going to have to fight for it. Complacency won't win the day, and people would be yeah. motivated to do something. So until that day, you know. Yeah, my, my friend uh, Frank, he was telling me, he thought, like, they have never done any updates or made anything better with Google Voice. And he thought, what if, what if Google Voice was just totally so they could get all these different inflections and dialects and all that stuff. And they just record it so that they can just get better and better at, uh, like voice recognition and stuff like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, like, like all this stuff is the, the big fear I have more than anything is just the manipulation factor that it's all about advertising and the dollar and that, that, that they do this stuff so that eventually you don't even realize that you're being sold something. You know what I mean? And then, and then you're just a sheep, I guess. Yeah, ultimately. Well, I think it'll accelerate faster it's scary. than we can handle it. It's a little it, scary so for sure. Part. But anyway, all right, that's the damn news right for sure. All right, brought to you by Grant Curse, Michael Stevenson, Anna Stewart, Kyle Smith, Craig Tamino, Evan Culkins, Lucas Hendrickson, Eric Nowicki, Anthony Franklin, Jonathan Dye, Justin Coffey, Joshua Kendig, and Daniel Craig. Thank you. Yeah, thank all. everybody for being members of the BC Club and helping us do all the stuff that we're doing. I want to thank Pete, too, for joining us for this whole episode. I think you did a really good job. Yeah, this was great. And, and let's, let's say his book one more time. Pete, Pete tell us your book and, and every, any details you want to give about it. Uh, the Sin of Certainty, and it's a book I think a lot of people are going to enjoy, and, and I've gotten good feedback on it so far about um, it's okay not to be sure. 
It's okay not to be certain. That's a normal part of the Christian life. Don't worry about it. Right on. That's those kind of stuff that we always talk about. But, yeah, we appreciate your time today. We're going to let you go. Thanks, right. man. Thanks, Good talking guys. to you. Thanks, man. Good this talking awesome. to you. I appreciate it, guys. See ya. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.